Section zero one of Volume one D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight by David Hume, Volume one D section zero one chapter thirty eight part one elizabeth contemporary monarchs emperors of germany ferdinand fifteen sixty four maximilian fifteen seventy six rodolphe the second kings of scotland mary abdicates fifteen sixty seven james the sixth kings of france henry the second fifteen fifty nine francis the second fifteen sixty charles the ninth fifteen seventy four henry the third fifteen eighty nine henry the fourth kings of spain philip the second fifteen ninety eight philip the third popes Paul the fourth, fifteen fifty eight, Pius the fourth, fifteen sixty five, Pius the fifth, fifteen seventy two, Gregory the thirteenth, fifteen eighty five, Sixtus the fifth, fifteen ninety, Urban the seventh, fifteen ninety, Gregory the fourteenth, fifteen ninety one, Innocent the ninth, fifteen ninety one, Clement the seventh, fifteen fifty eight. In a nation so divided as the English, it could scarcely be expected that the death of one sovereign and the accession of another, who is generally believed to have embraced opposite principles to those which prevailed, could be the object of universal satisfaction. Yet so much were men displeased with the present conduct of affairs and such apprehensions were entertained of futurity that the people overlooking their theological disputes expressed a general and unfeigned joy that the sceptre had passed into the hand of elizabeth that princess had discovered great prudence in her conduct during the reign of her sister and as men were sensible of the imminent danger to which she was every moment exposed compassion towards her situation and concern for her safety had rendered her to an uncommon degree the favourite of the nation a parliament had been assembled a few days before mary's death and when heath archbishop of york then chancellor notified to them that event scarcely an interval of regret appeared and the two houses immediately resounded with the joyful acclamations of God save Queen Elizabeth, long and happily may she reign. The people, less actuated by faction and less influenced by private views, expressed a joy still more general and hearty on her proclamation, and the auspicious commencement of this reign prognosticated that felicity and glory which during its whole course so uniformly attended it. Elizabeth was at Hatfield when she heard of her sister's death. 
and after a few days she went thence to london through crowds of people who strove with each other in giving her the strongest testimony of their affection on her entrance into the tower she could not forbear reflecting on the great difference between her present fortune and that which a few years before had attended her when she was conducted to that place as a prisoner and lay there exposed to all the bigoted malignity of her enemies she fell on her knees and expressed her thanks to heaven for the deliverance which the almighty had granted her from her bloody persecutors a deliverance she said no less miraculous than that which daniel had received from the den of lions this act of pious gratitude seems to have been the last circumstance in which she remembered any past hardships and injuries with a prudence and magnanimity truly laudable she buried all offences in oblivion and received with affability even those who had acted with the greatest malevolence against her sir henry benningfield himself to whose custody she had been committed and who had treated her with severity never felt during the whole course of her reign any effects of her resentment yet was not the gracious reception which she gave prostitute and undistinguishing when the bishops came in a body to make their obeisance to her she expressed to all of them sentiments of regard except to bonner from whom she turned aside as from a man polluted with blood who was a just object of horror to every heart susceptible of humanity after employing a few days in ordering her domestic affairs elizabeth notified to foreign courts her sister's death and her own accession she sent lord cobham to the low countries where philip then resided and she took care to express to that monarch her gratitude for the protection which he had afforded her and her desire of persevering in that friendship which had so happily commenced between them philip who had long foreseen this event and who still hoped by means of elizabeth to obtain that dominion over england of which he had failed in espousing mary immediately dispatched orders to the duke of feria his ambassador at london to make proposals of marriage to the queen and he offered to procure from rome a dispensation for that purpose but elizabeth soon came to the resolution of declining the proposal she saw that the nation had entertained an extreme aversion to the spanish alliance during her sister's reign and that one great cause of the popularity which she herself enjoyed was the prospect of being freed by her means from the danger of foreign subjection she was sensible that her affinity with philip was exactly similar to that of her father with catherine of aragon and that her marrying that monarch was in effect declaring herself illegitimate and incapable of succeeding to the throne and though the power of the spanish monarchy might still be sufficient in opposition to all pretenders to support her title her masculine spirit disdained such precarious dominion 
which, as it would depend solely on the power of another, must be exercised according to his inclinations. But while these views prevented her from entertaining any thoughts of a marriage with Philip, she gave him an obliging, though evasive, answer, and he still retained such hopes of success that he sent a messenger to Rome with orders to solicit the dispensation. The queen, too, on her sister's death, had written to Sir Edward Carne, the English ambassador at Rome, to notify her accession to the Pope. But the precipitate nature of Paul broke through all the cautious measures concerted by this young princess. He told Carne that England was a fief of the Holy See, and it was great temerity in Elizabeth to have assumed without his participation, the title and authority of queen, that, being illegitimate, she could not possibly inherit that kingdom, nor could he annul the sentence, pronounced by Clement the Seventh and Paul the Third, with regard to Henry's marriage, that were he to proceed with rigour, he should punish this criminal invasion of his rights, by rejecting all her applications, but being willing to treat her with paternal indulgence, he would still keep the door of grace open to her, and that if she would renounce all pretensions to the crown, and submit entirely to his will, she should experience the utmost lenity compatible with the dignity of the apostolic see. When this answer was reported to Elizabeth, she was astonished at the character of that aged pontiff, and having recalled her ambassador, she continued with more determined resolution to pursue those measures which already she had secretly embraced. The queen, not to alarm the partisans of the Catholic religion, had retained eleven of her sister's counsellors, but in order to balance their authority, she added eight more who were known to be inclined to the Protestant communion. The Marquis of Northampton, the Earl of Bedford, Sir Thomas Parry, Sir Edward Rogers, Sir Ambrose Cave, Sir Francis Knowles, Sir Nicholas Bacon, whom she created Lord Keeper, and Sir William Cecil, Secretary of State. With these counsellors, particularly Cecil, she frequently deliberated concerning the expediency of restoring the Protestant religion, and the means of executing that great enterprise. Cecil told her that the greater part of the nation had, ever since her father's reign, inclined to the Reformation, and though her sister had constrained them to profess the ancient faith, the cruelties exercised by her ministers had still more alienated their affections from it, that happily the interests of the sovereign here concurred with the inclinations of the people, nor was her title to the crown compatible with the authority of the Roman pontiff. That a sentence, so solemnly pronounced by two popes against her mother's marriage, could not possibly be recalled without inflicting a mortal wound on the credit of the see of Rome, and even if she were allowed to retain the crown, it would only be on an uncertain and dependent footing, 
that this circumstance alone counterbalanced all dangers whatsoever and these dangers themselves if narrowly examined would be found very little formidable that the curses and execrations of the romish church when not seconded by military force were in the present age more an object of ridicule than of terror and had now as little influence in this world as in the next that though the bigotry or ambition of henry or philip might incline them to execute a sentence of excommunication against her their interests were so incompatible that they never could concur in any plan of operations and the enmity of the one would always ensure to her the friendship of the other that if they encouraged the discontents of her catholic subjects their dominions also abounded with protestants and it would be easy to retaliate upon them that even such of the english as seemed at present zealously attached to the catholic faith would most of them embrace the religion of their new sovereign and the nation had of late been so much accustomed to these revolutions that men had lost all idea of truth and falsehood in such subjects that the authority of henry the eighth so highly raised by many concurring circumstances first inured the people to this submissive deference and it was the less difficult for succeeding princes to continue the nation in a track to which it had so long been accustomed and that it would be easy for her by bestowing on protestants all preferment in civil offices and the militia the church and the universities both to ensure her own authority and to render her religion entirely predominant the education of elizabeth as well as her interest led her to favour the reformation and she remained not long in suspense with regard to the party which she should embrace but though determined in her own mind she resolved to proceed by gradual and secure steps and not to imitate the example of mary in encouraging the bigots of her party to make immediately a violent invasion on the established religion she thought it requisite however to discover such symptoms of her intentions as might give encouragement to the protestants so much depressed by the late violent persecutions she immediately recalled all the exiles and gave liberty to the prisoners who were confined on account of religion we are told of a pleasantry of one rainsford on this occasion who said to the queen that he had a petition to present her in behalf of other prisoners called matthew mark luke and john she readily replied that it behoved her first to consult the prisoners themselves and to learn of them whether they desired that liberty which he demanded for them elizabeth also proceeded to exert in favour of the reformers some acts of power which were authorised by the extent of royal prerogative during that age finding that the protestant teachers irritated by persecution broke out in a furious attack on the ancient superstition
and that the Romanists replied with no less zeal and acrimony, she published a proclamation by which she inhibited all preaching without a special license, and though she dispensed with these orders in favour of some preachers of her own sect, she took care that they should be the most calm and moderate of the party. She also suspended the laws so far as to order a great part of the service, the litany, the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, and the Gospels, to be read in English. And having first published injunctions that all the churches should conform themselves to the practice of her own chapel, she forbade the host to be any more elevated in her presence, an innovation which, however frivolous it may appear, implied the most material consequences. These declarations of her intention, concurring with preceding suspicions, made the bishops foresee with certainty a revolution in religion. They therefore refused to officiate at her coronation, and it was with some difficulty that the Bishop of Carlisle was at last prevailed on to perform the ceremony. When she was conducted through London, amidst the joyful acclamations of her subjects, a boy who personated truth was let down from one of the triumphal arches and presented to her a copy of the Bible. She received the book with the most gracious deportment, placed it next to her bosom, and declared that, amidst all the costly testimonies which the city had that day given her of their attachment, this present was by far the most precious and most acceptable. Such were the innocent artifices by which Elizabeth insinuated herself into the affections of her subjects. Open in her address, gracious and affable in all public appearances, she rejoiced in the concourse of her subjects, entered into all their pleasures and amusements, and without departing from her dignity, which she knew well how to preserve, she acquired a popularity beyond what any of her predecessors or successors could ever attain. Her own sex exulted to see a woman hold the reins of empire with such prudence and fortitude, and while a young princess of twenty-five years, for that was her age at her accession, who possessed all the graces and insinuation, though not all the beauty of her sex, courted the affections of individuals by her civilities, of the public by her services, her authority, though corroborated by the strictest bands of law and religion, appeared to be derived entirely from the choice and inclination of the people. A sovereign of this disposition was not likely to offend her subjects by any useless or violent exertions of power, and Elizabeth, though she threw out such hints as encouraged the Protestants, delayed the entire change of religion till the meeting of the Parliament, which was summoned to assemble. The elections had gone entirely against the Catholics, who seem not indeed to have made any great struggle for the superiority, and the Houses met in a disposition of gratifying the Queen 
in every particular which she could desire of them. They began the session with a unanimous declaration that Queen Elizabeth was, and ought to be, as well by the word of God as the common and statute laws of the realm, the lawful, undoubted, and true heir to the crown, lawfully descended from the blood royal, according to the order of succession settled in the thirty-fifth of Henry the Eighth. This act of recognition was probably dictated by the queen herself and her ministers, and she showed her magnanimity as well as moderation in the terms which she employed on that occasion. She followed not Mary's practice in declaring the validity of her mother's marriage, or in expressly repealing the act formerly made against her own legitimacy. She knew that this attempt must be attended with reflections on her father's memory, and on the birth of her deceased sister, and as all the world was sensible that Henry's divorce from Anne Boleyn was merely the effect of his usual violence and caprice, she scorned to found her title on any act of an assembly which had too much prostituted its authority by its former variable, servile, and iniquitous decisions. Satisfied, therefore, in the general opinion entertained with regard to this fact, which appeared the more undoubted the less anxiety she discovered in fortifying it by votes and inquiries she took possession of the throne both as her birthright and as insured to her by former acts of parliament and she never appeared anxious to distinguish these titles the first bill brought into parliament with the view of trying their disposition on the head of religion was that for suppressing the monasteries lately erected, and for restoring the tenths and first-fruits to the queen. This point being gained without much difficulty, a bill was next introduced annexing the supremacy to the crown, and though the queen was there denominated governess, not head of the church, it conveyed the same extensive power which under the latter title had been exercised by her father and brother. All the bishops who were present in the upper house strenuously opposed this law, and as they possessed more learning than the temporal peers, they triumphed in the debate. But the majority of voices in that house, as well as among the commons, was against them. By this act, the crown, without the concurrence either of the parliament or even of the convocation, was vested with the whole spiritual power, might repress all heresies, might establish or repeal all canons, might alter every point of discipline, and might ordain or abolish any religious rite or ceremony. In determining heresy, the sovereign was only limited if that could be called a limitation, to such doctrines as had been adjudged heresy by the authority of the scripture, by the first four general councils, or by any general council which followed the scripture as their rule, or to such other doctrines as should hereafter be denominated heresy by the parliament and convocation, 
in order to exercise this authority the queen by a clause of the act was empowered to name commissioners either laymen or clergymen as she should think proper and on this clause was afterwards founded the court of ecclesiastical commission which assumed large discretionary not to say arbitrary powers totally incompatible with any exact boundaries in the constitution their proceedings indeed were only consistent with absolute monarchy but were entirely suitable to the genius of the act on which they were established an act that at once gave the crown alone all the power which had formerly been claimed by the popes but which even these usurping prelates had never been able fully to exercise without some concurrence of the national clergy end of section 1 chapter 38 part 1